The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Where are we going from here, Britt, next Sunday? Uh, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries and I'm with you next Sunday, we're going to start a four-part series on what I term Christ Applied. Christ applied. I'm going to give you the big four, justification, sanctification, preservation, and glorification. When you are redeemed, if you're a child of God, when you are redeemed, these are some incredible gifts from God. These are incredible benefits of the gospel. We're going to do that. What I want to do in the middle of all that, uh, we celebrate Christmas in all of its forms and all of its American forms in our house. And so, but I want to make sure that we're thinking about the unseen during the holiday times, during Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. And so if you're a child of God, these are some incredible gifts that God has given you, um, and we're going to walk through these systematically over the big four over the next four weeks. So I'm excited about that. There's joy in that. We get to celebrate in these things. These are things that God has done for us, and I'm excited um, to share those things with you. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 and 21. Let's pray, and then we will jump off into what the Lord has in store for us this morning. Eternal Father of mercy and kindness, grip our hearts through the person and work of the Holy Spirit that we might know you, that we might love you, and that we might seek to pursue after you, that we might seek to pursue after you in all that we do. Hold me up over the course of this sermon that I might proclaim your excellencies and the precious truths of our faith with power and clarity. So place your hand upon me, Father. Place your hand upon Pastor Greg and his service later today in another section of this world. Guide him, transform him, grow him in your likeness for your glory as you will do with this church body at the same time, I pray. And we do this that the gospel might be known. So it's in Christ Jesus that we petition you for these things. Amen. So to the text, hear the closing exhortation and benediction to Timothy by the authorship of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 here, Paul writes, he closes out, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. That's a plural you there. So the title of the sermon this morning that's on the screens, I believe it was there, is Trustees of the Gospel. That's the title of the sermon this morning, Trustees of the Gospel, and it's in in accordance with the concluding benediction of 1 Timothy here. This exhortation or this benediction that we see here, they're concise statements that I think summarize, I think they summarize what what Paul has been getting at in this epistle, this letter. Paul has these unique ways of summarizing things in just a statement or two, and I think he does that here, and I'm going to give you some reflectional statements about this. But in the closing remarks of this book, as with common with Paul, he can condenses everything and he sort of brings the argument into a few simple statements here. What's fascinating to me about this summation here in the closing section of this chapter, what's fascinating to me about it is that Paul positions, catch this, he positions a positive statement right next to a negative statement in this. So he positions this positive statement in the closing benediction here, and then he gives Timothy a negative statement. So the positive statement is this, it's, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. 
This is a positive statement in the text. You see it right in front of you. And then look how he sets it over and against a negative statement. The next part here is the avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So it's guarding a deposit. It's this idea of entrusting. And then it's, uh, he sets that over and against irreverent babble and false knowledge. So Paul creates a contrast in these closing statements, and I think it helps, and when I read it, I think it helps lift the exhortation above it. It's kind of like when you take the gospel to a dark place, you turn a light on in a dark room, it's just that much brighter. So when he positions a positive statement against a negative, I think it brings the positive statement, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. I think it kind of heightens it. I think it gives it a, I think it brings it out of the text. It just sort of jumps out to you, or it does to me, as, as, and so that's how I'm gonna preach it this morning. Because <laughs> you give me the microphone, that's how I'm gonna preach it this morning. So guard the deposit that is entrusted. The guard the deposit and entrusted. So what is the deposit, Brit? What is the deposit that Timothy is is being told about here that Paul is writing? What is the deposit and what does it mean for me to be entrusted with that? These are important concluding remarks here to us. The deposit in all of its truth is the doctrine of the gospel. The deposit is the truth. It's the word of God. It's the doctrine of the gospel. The deposit is the gospel. It's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. We get this in the book of Jude. This is the gospel. The gospel, listen to this, this is so important. I try to clarify this everywhere I go. The gospel is not saving an individual from guilt or shame. It's not, a, it's not giving you a life of purpose. That's a, that's a ramification of the gospel once God redeems you. It's not improving your quality of life. That, that may be a ramification. It may improve the spiritual quality of your life. But listen to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is saving you from high treason against the creator and redeemer, the holy sustainer of everything there was and there, everything there will be God Almighty. The gospel is, is the means of saving you and I from fundamental, natural-born, open revolt against the God of everything. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is about giving you hope before a creator God who's holy and he's unblemished and he cannot, be, he cannot look favorably upon you without the righteousness of another. You're not righteous enough to get to him. That's why we need Jesus Christ. We need someone to stand in our place. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in its purest sense. So this is the gospel that's been deposited into Timothy's life and ministry. This is the gospel that's been implanted into his heart that he proclaims in the church and that he upholds in the church. This is the gospel that sets the pace for everything we do. Everything we do in this church hangs upon that principle. It hangs upon the marvelous doctrine of the gospel. This is the gospel that gets me out of bed in the morning. This is the gospel that I've given my life to proclaim in word and deed. And this is the gospel that Jesus calls you to do the same with as well. The gospel that we have been called to guard. So what does this mean for us? The gospel that we've been called to guard as trustees, the trustees of the gospel. Do you understand that you're a trustee of the gospel? Paul is telling Timothy the way he unfolds this phrase. I think it's applicable to everyone in this room. Timothy is a trustee of the gospel. But Britt, what under heaven does that mean to be a trustee of the gospel? What does it mean for me? And does it have implications for me? The answer to both those questions is yes. <laughs> and so I'm gonna explain this to you. Trustee's a legal term. I'm married to a lady that practices law. I don't think she's in, she isn't in here. I think she's in, I can say whatever I want. She's not in here this morning. <laughs> when, you're, when you're married to an attorney, you know what that means? That means you know how to argue. 
Listen, you, if you're going to maintain a position in my house, then you by God better bring the heat because it doesn't stand up. So, but she's an attorney. And so we talked about this term this week. I said, what is a trustee? Talk to me. Give me some, give me some, give me, talk to me a little bit about this. So she does what any good attorney did. She pointed me to some books. <laughs> so attorneys usually deal with books. They're kind of like theologians. So she sends me to this book. It's the Black's Law Dictionary. Some of that, it might dry your eyeballs out, but I like words. Words are my friends. I, I care about words. So I'm kind of the guy a little bit of inner nerd in me. So I go, I go pick this thing up. I tell you all the time, I kind of have an odd mind. I actually picked it up and thought about the late Justice Scalia. He used the second edition of the uh, Webster's Dictionary. But anyway, I don't know why I told you that. That's a footnote. But anyhow, so you get this book and it tells you what trustee is. I thought it had a beautiful definition in it. Listen to this. This is beautiful to me. It says a trustee is one who has legal title to a property and he holds it in trust for the benefit of another. <laughs> I read that and I thought, yeah, man, I can preach that, son. So he said he holds it in trust for the benefit of another. A trustee, listen, this is beautiful language to me. It says a trustee is one that protects and preserves the trust of a property and he assures that it is employed solely for the beneficiary. That's good language on that. Y'all are like, what is Britt talking about? Let me put this in layman terms for you. Timothy is holding something that he wasn't given. He's holding something that wasn't given to him and he's been charged to protect and preserve it for the betterment of the kingdom of God. Timothy is holding on to something that he didn't earn. He's holding on to something that he didn't build. He's holding on to something that he didn't, he didn't, he didn't attain. He didn't unfold it for himself. He's holding on to the gospel and the truth. Do you understand that? He's holding on to the gospel and the truth just like you and I and he's been called to protect and preserve it for the benefit of another, for the benefit of the kingdom of God. This is the call upon his life. I believe this is the call upon everybody's life in here that claims to be a child of God. This is what makes people that manipulate and utilize the church. This is what makes people that utilize the church for their own benefit. It's what makes it exceptionally indecent. It's what makes people that, that it's a, it's it, people that use the church for their own benefit. It's a fist shake at a merciful and mighty God. And it's exceptionally filthy. It's a, it's a shake at your fist at the kindness of God. When the church is used for personal gain and benefit, it's exceptionally indecent to me. And it's the pinnacle of treason in my opinion. It's the pinnacle of treason in the church. And so do you realize that God's grace to you is not only your conversion, not only your conversion is God's grace to you, but it's the fact that he's redeemed you by the, by the beauty of his might and salvation. That's the truth for you. But it's the fact that you've been entrusted to hold forth the gospel, to hold it forth in its, all its beauty and all its purity for the purposes of the kingdom. You realize that? You're a trustee of the gospel. Paul is calling, tell, telling Timothy here, he's calling him to guard the deposit. The, the guard the deposit is not a passive term. We talk about this all the time. I tell you all the time, it's action-based. We're Christians. We don't live the faith on our heels. We don't live the Christian faith on our heels. It's action. So Paul is just coming off the utilization of words like pursue and fight and take hold. And then he tells him to guard this deposit. It's not a passive thing. To guard the truth is not a passive thing. You don't guard the truth on your heels. Timothy and Paul are fighting for their life in these churches. 
So important for us. Hear me loud and clear, my friends. By the authority of God Almighty as revealed in the scriptures and supported by the word and deed of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, you have been called as a child of God to hold forth the gospel as a trustee, to guard and employ it for the benefit of God's kingdom and his purposes, not your own agenda. Not your own agenda. So here's the implication of this. Here's an implication of this. Why is it so important, Britt? Why are you fired up about this? Why are you so passionate about this stuff? I'm a passionate guy, but why am I so fired up about it? I think one of the implications here to being a trustee of the gospel, and this applies to everybody in this room, I think, is that being a trustee of the gospel, holding on to the deposit of the gospel that Paul unfolds here, is because the gospel has a transgenerational nature to it. That's a $6 word. What are you talking about, Britt? The gospel transcends from one generation to the other. You understand that? You understand that it transcends, it has a transcend, it's a transgenerational nature to it. This is the gospel. The gospel has been held forth in its complete form so that it might not only be put on display for the world verbally and offered to people, but passed along to the next generation. It's the highest call that God's put on your life as a child of his. I've been handed the baton by people. I'm a product of people that have held and managed the trust with faith and dignity and purpose and honor. I'm a product of men and women that held the, held the trust of truth when it cost them. I'm a product of these people. I'm a product of men and women that held the trust of truth when it wasn't popular, when it cost them everything. I stand on their shoulders. Understand that? You've got to realize that the gospel transcends from one generation to the next because the church is the trustee. The church is the people. The people of God are the church. That's God's grace to you. It's his grace's invitation to you to be part of a work that lives on beyond yourself. That's so compelling to me. I don't know if that's compelling to anybody, but it's so compelling to me. It's something I'm so passionate about. The gospel outlasts you. Live for something beyond yourself. Please, I plead with you about that. It's why the students and children of this church are so important to me. If you're around me long enough, you'll hear me talk about this. You've got to realize that the gospel transcends to generation to generation. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not a negative guy. I'm generally a pretty positive guy. But sometimes it is so discouraging how much this is not understood in the broad church. I'm talking about the big C church. I have conversations, you might not realize this because you're like, this guy's young, but I have conversations about the big C church outside of here. Conversations with people about how do we deal with the issues going on in the world? What does the church do in the future? What does it look like for the next generation? And I think we're failing at this. And it's so discouraging to me. It's so discouraging to me how we have no desire to set our individual preferences aside so that we can employ the gospel effectively, that we can employ it, employ it effectively for the benefit of the kingdom, for the benefit of his kingdom, for the benefit of the generations behind you and not your own agenda. I'm so concerned about this. It's heavy on my heart. You're a trustee of the gospel and that's because it goes from one generation to the next by way of your willingness to live faithfully and think about the people coming behind you. It's just a reality of where we're at. So one of my favorite people, I read a lot about old dead people, but one of my favorite people that I've read about um, 
She was a, a women's basketball coach at the University of Tennessee. Any, I know we got some Tennessee people in here. Any more Tennessee, any Tennessee basketball folks in here? Any Tennessee folks in here? We don't have anybody. There we go. There's my Tennessee people there. I like Tennessee people. Listen, I got some friends that are Tennessee Vol Nation people, and I like them. But one of my favorite people that I've read about was a basketball coach there. Her name was Pat Summit. Some of you probably remember Pat Summit. Pat Summit was wonderful, wonderful lady, in my opinion. I've read a lot about her. I, I, she was a, a basketball coach there of the women's basketball team for almost 38 years. She won eight national championships. She was a remarkable leader. She really was. She was a strong person. I admired her a lot over the years. I really looked up to her in a lot of ways. I like her style. She's a straight shooter, man. She's passed away now, but if you knew anything about her, she's a straight shooter. She just shot straight. She, you knew where she stood all the time. She was clear with you. Um, she, and this is important. She grew up a country girl. It's near to my heart. People that grow up in the country, it's something, they got, they've made it something different. Don't ask me how I know that. But anyway, she, she never forgot where she came from, which is a hallmark of character to me. Just a, just a remarkable lady. She grew up in a farm. She worked hard. She never forgave where she came from. She lived with dignity and purpose, and she worked hard. Uh, she, was a, she just was a remarkable. She was fire, man. She would press you. She just would press you. It was often said about her, her, the uh, students that she coached, she, they would often say that she got more out of them than they thought they had in them which is the hallmark of a good leader. And so I just, I just liked her. She had a strength on and off the court that I admired. She died at 60, 65, not terribly long after being diagnosed with the, uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, in the final chapters of her life, she wrote this biography, and uh, I read it. And she made a statement in this book. I read the statement. I'll do this sometimes. I read the statement. I had to put the book down. This is what she said. She's, she's probably 64 at this time, 63 She said, above all, I know that Alzheimer's has brought me to the point that I was going to arrive at someday anyway. With or without this diagnosis, I was going to experience diminishment. We all do. It's our fate. Look at me. That's a theological statement. This is a woman that understands original sin. She understands that the price of sin is death on this earth. That's a theological statement. But reach up here and grab this part. This is so good to me. She says, we're not here to be completely satisfied nor are we in command, not even, not even of our own bodies. And then she says this, I'll never forget this statement in my life. She says, we borrow, we don't own. And I put the book down. I had to walk away from the desk. She said, we borrow, we don't own. In some, Pat Summit's language, she's making a statement about being a trustee of, a, of your body, a trustee of this life. We don't own anything we hold on to as Christians. We're entrusted for a small window of time with some precious truths. You don't own them. You're just called to guard them. And you're here. But here's the kicker to all of it. The guard, it it does not mean that you hide in it. It does not mean you make it about you. To guard the gospel means that you put the truth and all of its beauty on display. To guard it in the sense is that you live its truth out in purity to the best of your ability. You borrow, you don't own. You're a trustee of the gospel, so live for the benefit of his kingdom, not your own. I plead with you. Trustee of the gospel, live for the benefit of his kingdom, not your own. And then Paul switches here to the negative statement we talked about before. Look at the second part of verse 20 here. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So Paul uses a positive statement, and then he sets this negative statement out in that. I think it applies to the whole church. One of the hallmarks of false teaching, I've been telling you this forever, one of the hallmarks of false teaching is that they set themselves up as having superior knowledge to those of faithful Christians. 
This, you don't care about this, but this is the enlightenment of, Italy, of Europe, of Germany. This higher criticism. They have a better knowledge than we do. These folks that Paul and Timothy were dealing with, dealing with I'll be honest with you, they probably lived well. They probably were influential in society. They probably held sway in communities. They probably had political capital. They probably had monetary capital. They probably were attractive people. This is the way it works. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this statement. The great preacher from, uh, from London, he preached through, I told you this last week, he preached at Westminster Chapel in London through World War II. He's a man. He said, men may live well that do not die victoriously. And I thought, this is, this is the false teacher. So here's the question. These things creep in your life. This false knowledge, it creeps into your life. It just does. I promise you, no one's exempt. The man standing in front of you isn't exempt. It creeps into your life. So how, how do you deal with the creep? How do we avoid the creep? What is correct knowledge and why is it important? How do we deal with the creep? I think there's a lot of things I can do here with this, a lot of applications I'm gonna give you, but I'm gonna try to be real practical for you this morning. I think you avoid, the, everybody in here deals with this. There's narratives in this world that just creep into your life. They're false knowledge. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from this stuff. How do we deal, how do we deal with the creep of this? I think we deal with the creep with this by living in relationship with God. Okay, I'm gonna explain this to you. Relationship with God is how you stay strong on the knowledge of him. You tracking with me on that? Relationship with God is one of the means by which you fight the creep of false knowledge and you remain clear and strong in the, in the knowledge of God. This is how you do this. So let me give you two examples here very, very quick. I'm gonna give you two examples. We're gonna move fast here. Joy and grief, okay? These two ideas of joy and grief. Joy and grief are human emotions. The Psalms deal clearly with human emotions. We go to the Psalms. The Psalms are what I call keeping it real. They keep it real. The Psalms are real. David and the Psalter, they're mad at God. They're angry at God. They, they, they grieve. They have joy. It's all these reins of human emotions in there. And so if you take the idea of joy and grief, I'm going to explain to you how you, you, God uses those two things to keep you in relationship with him. This is how you fought, fight against the creep of false knowledge in your life. So let me give you this example of grief. In Psalm 13, the 13th Psalm, David is writing this Psalm here. David's grieving in the 13th Psalm. He's dealing with grief. He's dealing with God that he feels like God's deserted him. It's a part of grief. You've been there. Some of you might be dealing with this right now. You feel God's distant from you. You're going through a difficult time and you feel like he's deserted you. And in this Psalm, David says in the 13th Psalm, David says, how long, O Lord? He's lamenting. He's grieving about things in this. And, he, and then you get the verse five in this Psalm and it's like he has this spiritual breakthrough in here. It's grief. He's grieving and God's dealing with him. And he's deal you have to deal with God in grief if you're a child of God. You just have to deal with it. I, I don't like grief. I don't like grief. But it's one of the things that God's employees in your life to build relationship with him. And then he gets to verse five and he has this spiritual breakthrough. And listen to what David says. He just says, how long, Lord? How long will you leave me here? How long will I have sorrow in my heart? And then in verse five, he says, but I've trusted your steadfast love and my heart still rejoices in your salvation. Do you see how God is building relationship through the grief in this? Do you see that, how he does that in these verses? In the midst of the grief, it's like David gets to this spiritual breakthrough. It's relationship with God. He uses that in your life. And if you're grieving, I'm so sorry. It's one of the things that God uses in your life to build relationship. How about the contrast of this? How about joy? Take, I'm just, we can take any of these in the Psalms. Take joy, for example. Joy in, in Psalm 90, about 92 through 100 is what is commonly compacted together. Those Psalms, it's about seven or eight Psalms in there. They call them the royal Psalms. 
They call them the royal psalms. They're usually dealt with as a coherent group, and they're, they're the royal psalms because the idea that happens in there is that all throughout these psalms, there's this, there's this proclamation that, that God is king. We talked about that some in a few sermons back. And so it's, it's various, it's like a literary outburst of praise. And so as you're reading through these, you'll get to 92 and you realize that the, God's being praised for his great works. In 93, he has the ability to reign. You'll see that the Psalter says he has the ability to reign and then you'll get to 90, 94 and it, it, it's praising him for his faithfulness. Or if you go over to Psalm 100, it's praising God for his, his consistency. There's a consistency to God's love. There's a steadfastness to God's love. And so he's praising him for all these things. And I think these royal psalms, they continually, they conti- continually petition the reader to make a joyful no- no- uh, noise as a result of God's salvation. 95.1, 98.2, all these verses in there, it talks about God's salvation. God is to be praised in worship because of our relationship with him through salvation. Do you see the joy in that? We're gonna celebrate that over the next four sermons up here. Lord willing, we're gonna celebrate the joy in the, in, in the relationship that we have with God. But these royal psalms, and even if we looked at it with grief there, it helps you avoid this creep of irreverent babble and false knowledge. These things are so attractive. They're more attractive than you can even imagine. How do we avoid the creep? We maintain relationship with God. One of the ways you maintain relationship with God is through your emotions. It's through the things that God is putting you through. He draws you to himself. Relationship with God keeps your knowledge of him sharp. Relationship with God, it keeps your heart knit to his person. It keeps your heart knit to his nature. It keeps your heart knit to his abilities. When you grieve, you have to lean on him as a child of God. He keeps you faithful. You see, relationship with God is formed by grieving with him. It's formed by rejoicing with him. It's formed by walking with him through peaks and valleys of your life. How do you know God? You maintain relationship with him. How do you know God? You maintain relationship. You avoid the creep of false knowledge based upon your relationship with So here's three reflectional statements. I'm gonna give you three reflectional statements on the book of 1 Timothy. We preached through this book. We're gonna move on around there. I just wanna give you three big rock ideas that if you wanna jot them down or sear them in your mind, whatever you wanna do to take away from this. We gotta take things away from it. We talked about a lot in this, but three big things. The number one is this. We talked about it all morning long. You're a trustee of the gospel, so hold on to truth and live it out for the benefit of his kingdom. Okay, Paul is writing to Timothy all throughout this letter in many ways to encourage him to continue on the path of faithfulness, to continue to press even further into what God's called him to do on this earth. Timothy is a pastor. You're not a pastor. What difference does it make, Britt? I believe that everyone in this room, I believe this with all my heart. Look at me. Everybody look up here at me. I believe everyone in this room with all my heart, God has a purpose for you. I'm not trying to sound like Joel Osteen up here, but I genuinely believe that God has a path set out for you. I believe that. He and I differ on what that path might look like, but I believe that you have a path. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe it from experience. I believe it from being in the church since I was like this tall. My parents are here today. I even put socks on for my dad. Do you believe that? <laughs> I'm preaching with socks on this morning. Anyway, so I think God has a purpose for you. He's called you to be a trustee of the gospel and to live a life beyond your personal desires. Live a life for the benefit of his kingdom in everything you do. I'm so big on this. In everything you do, not just in here on Sunday morning, but out there in the world, live for his kingdom. You're a trustee of the gospel. 
is so important. I'm just giving you an illustration here. I'm not trying to sound holy. I'm just telling you how I think. Maybe this will be helpful to you. Maybe you'll be like, Brett, get over yourself, man. But when I was in Clemson, when I was a student in Clemson, man, we grew up, we just worked. That's all I've known to do my whole life is just work. It's just, I mean, it's just who I am. My wife's the same way. We probably are workaholics, but that's another confessional day. We'll say that for another day. But anyway, so it, we, I worked this place called the South Carolina Botanical Garden at Clemson. I worked there for almost four years. I worked in the maintenance department, which meant that part of my job was to be a janitor. I fixed tractors and all kinds of stuff like that. I'm really close to the boss that I had there. He's a good friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine. We still keep in touch. I've got friends that, I mean, I have people that They'd go to the wall for me now. And I met them at the South Carolina Botanical Gardens when I was on facilities there. And I, man, I had to make money. That's just what we did. So I worked there and part of my duties was to clean bathrooms and empty trash. And this is, this is not Grace on the Ashley. This is a public entity at Clemson University and anybody can get into it at any point in time. And so I'm telling you right now, when you clean a public restroom in a place like that, you see some stuff, man. (laughs) I'm serious, man. I have seen some stuff and I did it for four years. Every day I went in there, every day I'd go in there and I'd clean up, it'd be a hundred degrees. Anything you can imagine, let your mind wander to the ends of the earth that would happen in there. I would go in there and clean this stuff up. And I just did it with joy in my heart. There were days that it was hard. It was a hundred. I mean, it just was like, and every day, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. God is my witness. You can call my boss that was there and he'd tell you this. Every day I tried to clean that place like the president of the United States was showing up the next day. Why? Why did you do that, Britt? Because I understand that I'm a trustee of the gospel and everything I do in here, out of here with my family, anywhere on earth is a reflection of him and his kingdom. Sometimes it's the only way that anybody will ever see the gospel. I'm a trustee of the gospel in this place, outside of this place, and everything I do is a reflection of of what he's accomplished through the gospel. It's not debt, it's gratitude. It's not for my benefit, it's for his glory, for his renown, for his kingdom. I'm a trustee of the gospel, so hold the truth forth and live it out for the benefit of his kingdom. That's point number one. Point number two is this, the big takeaways from this. I've told you this a million times in here, I feel like. I've said it 50 times. Fight against a life independent from God. These are, so, these are big issues that we're dealing with in the world out here today. I'm trying to help you because I have to wrestle with this stuff all week. I have to live with these things all week. It's called sermons. But anyway, they wear me out. But I fight against a life independent from God. Listen, we live in a culture of independence now. We just do. We live in a culture that, that you do you and I'll do me and we fight against this life independent from God. We just do. You, if you're sitting there going, you know, I don't fight a life independent from God. Come talk to me. <laughs> Tell me the secret because everybody I think in here fights this. I've told dozens of times from this pulpit that the false gospel, these false narratives on your life, these truths that are not truths, they tempt you to be independent from God. Are you tracking with me on that? They tempt you to be independent of God and they, they, they tempt you to exalt yourself above him. <laughs> this has been a problem since the garden. Just eat the fruit. You know better. This is the false narratives on your life. It tempts you to exalt yourself higher than him. You live with this, you, it's like you live with this reckless spirit or this whatever you want. Just eat and drink and be merry and tomorrow will be tomorrow and it's all poison. And everybody in here is suspect of it. And I think it manifests itself in two broad forms. This is my opinion. There's everything in between, but I think two generally broad ways this manifests itself in the culture. I think it's helpful for you. The first is this indifference towards life. 
Some of you have gotten older, you've been through some stuff, and I'm sorry. And it can leave you cynical. It can leave you cynical about the church. It's like this, I don't care attitude. Everything's vanity. We just suck it up and be stoics and we just power through this thing and it keeps you on the fringe. I love you. I'm just being honest with you. It keeps you on the fringe. That's sort of the, one of the ways that life independent from God will manifest itself. The other is this overindulgence in yourself. It's very real. I'm just, I'm just gonna do me and be happy type of attitude. I'm gonna live my true truth and I'm gonna chase whatever feels right for me. I'm gonna let the chips fall. I'm a person of pleasure. I'm gonna chase whatever makes me feel right and whatever makes me feel good. And I think we all at times probably fit somewhere in these things. These are two sides of a life independent from God. False teaching appeals to these desires. It appeals to this stuff. It's building us. I'm sorry, but it is. Everyone in this room is bent towards this. Only the God of all mercy and kindness can satisfy your deepest longings. This old dead guy is a Puritan named Thomas Manton. Puritans were just these old dead people that wrote good stuff that I like to read. But anyway, he says that the soul, this is so good to me. He says the soul finds happiness only in that which it is most suited for. God Almighty. The only suitor for your soul is the one that made you God Almighty. How do you mend your soul to him? How do you mend your soul to the one that created you? You place your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. Look at me, come to him. The Bible says that all that repent and believe in his name will be called his children. He longs to make you his treasure. He longs to place you in relationship with the only thing that can satisfy you, God Almighty. Number three, this is so important to me. We'll bury a man this week, God willing, that I think live for this. So listen up. The third takeaway that I take away from this entire book is that we are people that live for the unseen. There's so much that you'll do in your life, you live for the unseen, and it's not easy. Yesterday, our city group was at a nursing home not far from here, and I get the joy of standing back and looking at people bake cookies, and I met a guy named Ray, and we talked to him. We talked to him about the faith, and he was prayed for. And I just get to witness all this stuff, and I'm sitting in there thinking to myself, this is living for the unseen. I have no idea what God's gonna do in all this. And I'll probably die and never know. This is the Christian journey. You live for the unseen. In recent, in recent sermons, we spoke about, a lot about living for the unseen. You, the, the living for the unseen is a reality check for the Christian. It keeps it in perspective for you. This letter to Timothy is a constant reminder to Timothy that there is life beyond here. And Jesus, he, Jesus, he lived for the most the, he lived for the unseen in the most beautiful ways. And they're so challenging to me. It's a reality check. The world is fleeting. Look at me. I'm trying to create urgency in you. The world is fleeting. And life moves at warp speed. Timothy needed reminders about the unseen. He needed to know that the promises of God are there and that life is eternal. The hope of the gospel. He needed this. I need this. This is the unseen. We're people of the unseen. The reality check about, this is a reality check to the Christian living for the unseen. It's about getting your head right. It's about keeping a proper perspective. As a Christian, you have to think about the life on the other side or you'll get out of balance. You remember how I told you that eternity has present impacts? 
As a Christian, you live for the unseen. You remember I told you that eternity has, is literal, everlasting life, but the, and it's the reward of the Christian faith, but it also has present impacts upon you now. It has impacts upon your life now. Reflection upon eternity, it functions as a reality check for the Christian. You live for the unseen, and it's not easy. We're results-oriented. And so reflection upon eternity, it functions as a reality check and it gives you perspective on what Jesus matters. And to live for the unseen is to live sold out to the gospel. Paul and Timothy are fighting for their life here. You want to be people that live as trustees for the gospel, to fight against the life independent from God and to live for the unseen? You want this? I want this. I want this for my life. I want this for my little daughter. I want this for my wife. I want this for you. I love you. I want this for you. I want this for my family. May the God of all mercy and kindness give us strength to be people that employ the truth of his words and the gospel for the benefit of others to fight against a life independent for God and to be people that live for the unseen. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Eternal Father, I'm thankful for your kindness to us. I'm thankful that you've called us to preach your word. I'm thankful that you've called us to live your word out. And I'm thankful that you call the church to be people that reflect upon this gospel that we're trustees of. I'm thankful that you build this into our life, Father, and that at this very moment we'll partake of one of the ordinances of this church, the Lord's Supper. It's a special time that we reflect upon the work of Jesus Christ as children. We're called to take this if we know you, Father. We're called to take this if we know you as a child, if we've been a part of your kingdom. And so I pray that you give us strength, God, in this time to reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you give us strength to to be people that know that the blood and the body of Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, Father. It's the only way to heaven. And so give us strength to reflect upon that in this moment and know that the gospel is real to your children and that we may live with an eternal perspective, Father, in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We know that when Jesus was preparing the supper, the last supper, the scriptures tells us that he gave the bread and then gave thanks for it. 